for somebody living with dementia, they're probably the only person in Australia who can be locked up for the rest of their lives against their will with no legal protection. You know, it, that's a really stark example, I guess, of the fact that we still see that as okay. Mm-hmm. Why do we still see that as okay? Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today's guest is Jason Burton. Jason has been working in aged care and dementia care for over 30 years, starting his career as a mental health nurse in the UK, and now working as the head of training, consulting, quality and innovation for Alzheimer's Western Australia. He is tireless in his pursuit to re-examine traditional methods of care and ask the question, can we do better? Jason is at the forefront of dementia care in Australia, and he's one of the most outspoken, innovative voices that we have. In this episode, we covered quite a few topics that Jason is passionate about, including dementia-enabled spaces, the use of deception in dementia care, and the pace of progress. So here is our interview with Jason Burton. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. My pleasure. Can we start with maybe a bit about you and, and the work that you do? Sure. So I work for Alzheimer's WA over here in, in Western Australia, based in Perth. And my background has been over the last 30 plus years now, really working with people with dementia and their carers across a whole range of different environments. So I was a mental health nurse by training back in the day. I guess how I fell into this uh, career was really my very first experience of dementia, really, and, and certainly dementia care was in a big old psychiatric hospital in the north of England and it was just at the time when we were closing those big old Victorian institutions down but I was actually waiting to go in the RAF surprisingly and so I had a few months to kill until the next intake and and got myself a job as a nursing assistant in this big old psychiatric hospital. My first experience was walking onto a dementia ward where there was 18 people living with dementia on this ward and the care was pretty dire, the environment was terrible Really, they were just being just being warehoused was probably the best way I could put it. They were on antipsychotic medication, high levels. There was very little engagement with people. And so I was distraught at, at this environment I'd walked into. But after a, a few days there, I started to get to know each individual. And as I got to know each individual person who was living there, I started to see beyond the dementia and started to see beyond the drugs and the, the sedation that they were under to actually just get glimpses of a person behind all of that. And then I started to meet the family who would come and visit them and learn a little bit more about their background. And this was a 17-year-old, very wet behind the ears, no idea what I was doing. But I guess I was brought up to connect with people. So that really lit the fire for me because I suddenly realised that we could actually be doing an awful lot more. And as practitioners, really, the experience of dementia is only partly related to the damage to the brain. And it's largely related to what's going on around the person and for the person. And so from there, I decided, okay, this is something I can do. And I seem to be able to connect with these people on the ward. And I thought maybe this is where I should be. 
Uh, so I then went on to do my mental health nurse training and at the end of it decided you, you had to decide which area you wanted to work in. And I said to my, my nurse tutors, and I was a bit of a bright young thing, they said to me, where do you want your last placement and where do you want to work? And I said, I really want to go back to the dementia ward. And they were like, what? <laughs> Why on earth would you want to go back there? It's a dead end career for nurses, you know, and that was the attitude. And they said, you're going to child and adolescent mental health or drug and alcohol, because that's where the research is. And that's where the excitement is. Mm. And I said, no, I think I can make the biggest difference where it's most needed. So, so that's kind of how I ended up in dementia care. And then I, I specialised after qualifying in dementia, doing a lot of clinical practice work, particularly around diagnosis that immediate post-diagnosis journey of people. Worked on setting up some of the first services for younger onset dementia in the UK. And then I moved to Australia 20 years ago, got fed up of the rain in Yorkshire and uh, decided that we'd come to sunnier climes. So found myself in, in West Australia 20 years ago and, um, and found myself with Alzheimer's WA, basically from getting off the aeroplane. Wasn't the plan, but Sometimes these things work out. And so for the last 20 years, I've worked across all of the different parts of our organisation, really. And my role now is, is leading our, our education and consultancy, our research, our innovation, but also helping support our practice and our services and our service models and making sure that, that as an organisation, we truly live the person-centred value system. And then we translate that into our practice on a day-to-day -day basis in the work that we do. So I've got a very wide remit and role these days. And going back to those early experiences in, in dementia care and the, the psychiatric hospitals, that's a pretty stark contrast to the direction things are going now. Are there still things that you feel like are, are remnants from that era that, that need to be addressed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's hard sometimes because I get very frustrated because, as I say, I, myself and many colleagues around the world have been really trying to change from that old medical paradigm into a person-centred paradigm for the last 35 years and so we get very frustrated at times that it seems to move so slowly. But then we have to think about how far we've come. And we have actually come a long way. But yeah, there's certainly, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to scratch the veneer too deep <laughs> to see that old paradigm of dementia is still pretty prevalent. You know, the human rights of people living with dementia are still not recognised, really. We still take away people's choice, autonomy. We're very paternalistic in our care of people living with dementia often. We still focus on the lived experience of dementia as a consequence of neurology, as opposed to the consequence of actually living with the condition and all the things that are going on in a very complex environment for a person. And I guess the best example of that is the way that we view behaviour of somebody living with dementia. And that's probably going to be my, I think, my litmus test for how far we've come and whether we're actually getting there, is how we actually really genuinely view the behavior of somebody living with dementia because fundamentally there's two things to it if you truly believe in person-centeredness one is that people living with dementia are no different to anybody who's living without dementia as a human being as a fundamental needs of a human being we're all the same and yet when somebody gets dementia we seem to stop seeing that and we we just think that people don't need that anymore mm. so if, if you or i without dementia have a really bad day you know, our boss has been horrible to us. Our partner is just sick to death of us because we don't clean up after ourselves. The kids are going wild. The dog's sick. Whatever it might be, we're going to be annoyed and frustrated or anxious or need to get out and get some fresh air just to calm ourselves down. If you do that with dementia because you're having a really bad day because the staff haven't treated you well or because you're bored or because 
you've got a really bad toothache and nobody's doing anything about it and you behave in that way, suddenly you've got, we label it and we say you've got BPSD. We, we say you've got behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia. No, that's just having a bad day. <laughs> so we still have this us and them attitude that's still very prevalent, really, if we're honest with ourselves. And that's probably one of the key things that I think when we get to a point where we change that, then we'll be really moving in the right direction. It sounds like with the BPSD diagnosis there, it's an unwillingness or an inability to understand what's being communicated. And a lot of the times, people who are living with dementia struggle to express themselves in ways that people are used to interpreting. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The thing is, there's three components to being a practitioner and working really well with somebody living with dementia, in my experience. One of those is knowledge. So you need to know, you need to have a good knowledge base around dementia about what it is, how it affects people, why it affects people, things like apraxias and agnosias and all of that stuff that, you know, that is the brain part that makes up and the type of dementia. Because when you're living with different types of dementia, it can be a different, very different experience as well. And, and we lump it all together often. There's lots and lots of different types of dementia and they all have their individuality in the way that people live with them. So there's a knowledge base that people need. Then there's a skills base. And so there's a lot of skill. And it's it's simplistically complex, I like to say, because it's an art form in many ways of being with somebody. And so to be able to step out of your space and step into their space and be with them in their world and be with them in their time and not be judgmental in that and not want to drag them into your space and not want to manage them in any way, shape or form. All of those things are a real skill base. So you need really good communication skills, verbal and nonverbal. You need really good observational skills. You need good reminiscence skills. You need good validation skills. All of these are skill sets that you need to be a really good practitioner with somebody living with dementia. And then the last uh, part of it is, for me, is emotional intelligence, who we are as people. If you don't have great empathy, if you don't have great ability to leave your baggage at the door and just be who that person needs you to be in that moment, if you don't see distress as distress and can't, then work with that. Another really important part of it is your own resilience within emotional intelligence, because this is really hard work and it's stressful work. And we grieve and we all of those things as practitioners when we're working with somebody living with dementia. So you need your own resilience as well and to be able to manage your own stress and your own grief and, and deal with that in a positive way. So those three areas, the skills, the knowledge and the emotional intelligence, if we can put all of those things together in a support worker, a nurse, an OT, a doctor, whatever it might be. And then we're going to have, in my experience, practitioners who can really deliver top quality person-centered care to somebody living with dementia and make a real difference to their life. A lot of my work over my career has been trying to find ways to help deliver those three things so that we can build capacity to do really good person-centered care. Just circling back to something you mentioned there about the rights of people living with dementia are often not respected. Perhaps some people would argue that this happens, but this is a, a product of needing to get things done or needing to provide a certain amount of care for people. Is this necessarily the case or why are the rights not respected and why should they be respected? I think, okay, to, what, let's start with why they should be. And I guess for me, it, it, again, it, it fundamentally comes back down to, do you see a person living with dementia as the same as you, as a human being who has the same rights as you without dementia? And if you don't believe that, then 
<laughs> we're off to a rocky start. So if we believe that, then we've got to look at, well, why doesn't it happen? And let me give you an example, a really stark one. And again, we're into a space here that black and white really doesn't exist. So we're in shades of grey, depending on where you sit on the spectrum of this. But for somebody living with dementia, they're probably the only person in Australia who can be locked up for the rest of their lives against their will with no legal protection. You know, it, that's a really stark example, I guess, of the fact that we still see that as okay. Mm-hmm. Why do we still see that as okay? And, and as I said, I, I'm not saying that shouldn't happen or it should happen. I just think it's something that we really need to think about in terms of how do we protect the rights of people living with dementia? And especially because we are in very complex space here. So you have the rights of the family and the carer, main carer as well. And they're, they're on this journey as well. So that's the other thing about dementia. It is a symbiotic relationship. It's not just affecting the person. It's affecting their main carer, their family, their friends, the community around them. So that's where it brings its level of complexity. The carer has rights as well. So you've, that's where it becomes challenging in the balance between how do we balance so that people living with dementia's rights are protected, that we see them as whole and full human beings and therefore they have the same rights as everybody else, but understanding that we're in a very complex situation that is degenerative and it is changing and that brings its own challenges with it. I, I think in aged care, we're still a fair bit behind disability generally. And so when I look at the disability movement over the last 30 years, we tend to lag about 15 years behind in most things. So I think I'm always looking to disability to see where they're at now because I think that's where we'll probably be in a few years' time. And so if you look at the big push in this country around restrictive practice, for example, in disability, and some really, really strong safeguarding around the rights of people with disability and restrictive practice that's coming in, that's the sort of movement that we need for older people generally, but certainly for people living with dementia as well where their rights are, are recognised, protected, enshrined in law. I mean, the funny thing is they are actually enshrined in law already. We just circumvent it and nobody challenges it, is the reality. But alongside that is the challenge that we have as both service providers, because we have a duty of care. As ethical practitioners, we don't want to see people come to any harm. This is the challenge in it, is that we have, we have those sort of pushes on us around that, but then we also have the push that we want to make sure that we're protecting the rights of people living with dementia and somewhere in there is the balance of it all and as I said depending on who you are what your service organization culture is what your country's laws are all of those things determine where along that spectrum you sit really against risk versus dignity versus human rights. Mm. And what do you think it would take to make dementia move up to the level of disability the where disability is at the moment and in the way that people with disabilities are respected? Look, and I'm not saying disability is perfect, and I'm sure if you spoke to many people with a disability, they feel stigma, they feel of excluded, course, yeah. all of that stuff. So don't get spectrum. me wrong, it's a spectrum. We're on a journey to mm-hmm. movement, but they're certainly ahead of us. So I guess probably, again, when I look back over my 30 years, some of the biggest changes I've seen, which I think will bring about the biggest changes ultimately, is people living with dementia having a voice and having a a forum for that voice, and actually advocating for their own rights. And I think when we look at disability, a lot of the movement in disability has come from very strong advocates living with disability who have pushed and said, this isn't okay. This isn't okay for me, it wouldn't be okay for you, so why should it be okay for me? Mm. 
And I think in the last, certainly in the last maybe five or six years, so we're still very early, I've seen more and more people living with dementia standing up and saying, this is not what we want. We want better than this. And I think if anything pushes us faster, it will be those voices saying, this is not okay. It's not okay for you to sedate me because you don't have enough staff. It's not okay for you to lock me up in a unit for the rest of my life because you don't have an enabling environment. I, I think when we start to hear those voices stronger and stronger, then we'll see movement much quicker. Do you think that any part of that enabling of those voices might come th- through the family as well and families becoming more aware that it's possible to speak up about these conditions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, family carers are in a really difficult situation and I've been a carer as well. I cared for my grandma who had Lewy body dementia. I was the main carer for her. So I, I've been on both sides of the fence with this one. So they, they're dealing with trying to do the best for their loved one, trying to survive. <laughs> yeah, it's being with someone with dementia is very tiring and draining if you're doing it really well because you're giving so much of yourself. And so to be with somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week, being there to support the person, also dealing with your own grief because this person is changing, dealing with your own stress because you're struggling to get the systems to work for you. All of that is just immense. And I just have such great admiration for families because they, what they do is just amazing, really. But it's very challenging for them. And again, we just don't have the systems and the supports and the structures that make it easier. Not easy, because it'll never be easy, but making it easier for them. And I think if we did, then again, the journey of the person with dementia would be different because the journey of the family would be different. You're listening to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. We're on a mission to examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. And each week, we're bringing aged care industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals directly to you to share their knowledge, stories, and experiences. In season one of the podcast, we delivered thought-provoking and meaningful episodes covering consumer experience, dementia care, palliative care, service transformation, and research and innovation. And we've got plenty more amazing guests lined up for season two. So maybe you'd like to partner with us and have your message showcased directly to our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. For advertising inquiries, please email acepodcast at silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. Now let's get back to this week's guest. Something that might that might change the experience of the carer and the person living with dementia is a dementia-enabled environment. Uh, you've done some research with Professor Richard Fleming from the University of Wollongong about dementia-enabled environments. What is a dementia-enabled environment? Okay, so yeah, I guess what we're talking about here is physical environments. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about design of buildings, physical accessibility. And uh, the work that Richard and I did was really around building on his immense knowledge and, and long experience in this space and the research that he, he did through his work at the University of Wollongong and Hammond Care. And the work that we did was really taking the research that we know exists around what makes good design for somebody with dementia and then trying to get that information out there because we were just so frustrated that despite the research being there, we were still seeing buildings that were terrible, really, really badly designed buildings, really basic badly designed features in buildings. And so we knew there was a certain level of research and evidence based around what good practice was. 
but we knew that the architects and the designers and the aged care organisations were not using it. So we set about a project that was really to create uh, a series of resources that would get the information out to the people to make good decisions um, who were designing and building these these environments. And so we created a, a really amazing website that's got so much information on it across a whole range of different physical environments, from aged care to hospitals to your own home to public buildings. And we're working on the next section of it, which will be urban design. And so that website's really our portal for information for the world. <laughs> and it gets a huge amount of hits from all over the world, which is wonderful to see because it means the information's getting out there. But in terms of what does it mean, I think one of the interesting areas that started to emerge is looking at dementia as a disability. So dementia's always had a bit of a funny placing in that sometimes it sits in mental health and sometimes it sits in neurology and sometimes it sits in aged care. And now we're talking about it as a disability. So it's kind of always had this really strange positioning and hasn't really had a home of its own. But I think when we put it into a disability framework and we think about the cognitive impairments and the disabilities that causes somebody, we can then start to build buildings that help to overcome those disabilities in the same way that we do with physical disability or visual impairment or or auditory impairment, whatever the impact of your condition might be in your day-to-day life, we can do the same with dementia. So if we think about some of the key things that happen to somebody because of cognitive change, we can look at things like spatial perception. So we know a lot of people with dementia because of a certain part of the brain getting damaged have difficulty perceiving 3D spaces And so their eyesight's fine, their eyes are working fine, but the way the brain's interpreting the actual signals is impaired. And for somebody with spatial perception problems, as an example, if you had a a dark grey chair on a dark grey carpet, the person with spatial perception problems would have great difficulty in being able to define that chair within a 3D space. Mm -hmm. So if you think when you walk up to a chair, your brain's actually interpreting its 3D location... And then you can reach out and grab the chair and sit in the chair. But if, it's a, if you've got spatial perception problems and the chair's the same colour as the background, you just, it's very difficult for a person to actually see the chair. The reverse of that is sometimes the, the brain can misinterpret contrast. So let me give you... And, and this is where we often have some difficulties around disability access and standards because some of the stuff that's good for other disabilities is actually really bad for somebody with dementia. Let me give you an example. If we think about, say, the tactile sensors that we use at thresholds and on crossings of of the road and things like that. So if somebody's got visual impairment problems, they can feel the tactile sensor and know that they're coming to the edge where they need to stop to cross the road. The problem is some of the guidelines suggest the better colour contrast of them helps for somebody who's got poor eyesight problems. The problem is if you've got spatial perception problems, if you've got a black tile sensor on a light grey concrete background and you've got spatial perception problem, it looks like a hole in the ground. So you'll see somebody with spatial perception problems walk up to it and walk around it. So there's a good example, I guess, of this isn't easy because different needs have different needs, but that's an example of spatial perception. And then if we look at the other impairments like short-term memory loss and the impact that can have on wayfinding and being able to find your way around a building, line of sight orientation becomes really critical. So if you can see something, someone with dementia is much more likely to use it. So we can set up our environments for really good line of sight orientation to the things that we want the person with dementia to engage with. So there's a whole raft of opportunity within the physical environment 
to do some really simple and non-expensive changes that will actually make a big impact on people's autonomy, people's feeling uh, more comfortable, feeling safe within an environment, being engaged by the environment, feeling included and inclusive of the environment. There's lots of changes we can make to, to do all of that for somebody living with dementia. Now you mentioned uh, urban spaces. Can you talk about a little bit of some of the ideas that would be helpful in urban spaces to make them more dementia-friendly or dementia-enabling? Yeah, sure. So again, if you think of a, a local space like a Circular Quay in Sydney or an Elizabeth Quay in Perth or a Federation Square in Melbourne, you know, these public spaces that, that we want to be accessible for everybody, we need to put those principles of good dementia design over those spaces and look at what can we do that's not going to be high cost because nobody wants to spend more money, but will make a difference. And it's very, it can be very simple things like signage. You know, signage is really critical because, as I said, we're finding an orientation to place is often impaired for people living with dementia. So really good signage that uses symbols and words because some people see symbols better than they can read words, making sure that the font is really readable, making sure there's good contrast between the font and the background, making sure the signs are in an obvious place. Some signs I see are just like, either so abstract that even without any cognitive impairment, I kind of look at it and go, is that a men's toilet sign or is that a peacock? What's yeah. that mean? And, and that they're, they're in an obvious place to see. So I see signs that are 16 foot in the air. And I think, you know, a 75 year old person who might be a slightly stooped because of their age and things, he's never seen that sign. Just a, a simple thing like using road signage in a different way and, and orientation signage within public spaces can make a real difference. I think getting a balance between aesthetics and good disability design generally is always a challenge. I see a lot of things that are aesthetically beautiful, but are terrible for people living with any type of disability. In fact, they're terrible for most people, <laughs> but they look beautiful. So I think looking at a bench seat, for example, I see some beautiful, amazing, aesthetically designed bench seats. But if you're 75 and you've got some level of physical impairment and you've got some level of cognitive impairment, that bench seat doesn't look like somewhere you want to sit. Mm. So then we're suddenly in a space that's got nowhere for me to sit. And now I'm starting to feel I really need to sit down somewhere. Mm -hmm. So either I'm never going to that space again, or I'm going to fall over somewhere, or I'm just going to find somewhere to perch myself that might not be appropriate, and I might fall off. You know, I often say to people who come to me for advice around design, I say, let's see if we can't get some people living with dementia to come and walk through your park. And they'll tell you what works for them and what doesn't, and then we can build on that. So I think getting that first-hand experience is just um, vital. And again, I think it's a little bit of our paradigm of dementia. People are afraid. Oh, we can't include people with dementia. What if they say something silly? Or what if they say something really weird? Or what if they do something that we don't know how to deal with? And so there's kind of a bit of a fear and stigma still around people living with dementia that means that they don't often get asked. And my experience is even people with quite significant impairment can contribute their insights. You just need to go about it in a certain way. And we're back to our skills again about being able to connect with somebody, make them feel comfortable, and then pose questions in a way that actually their brain can work on. Because we, we tend to pose really sort of yes and no questions generally. Mm. And that's often quite difficult for somebody with dementia. Whereas I find if you make it more conversational questions, you, then you're going to get, you, eventually you'll get the bits of information that you were really hoping to get. It, may, it might take longer and it might take a bit of, removing the padding, but you, then you'll get the insights in there. So there, there is techniques around consultation with people with dementia, particularly with more, more impairment, that we can use to get them involved. And having somebody walk through a space is a real eye-opener 
It really is. I've done it a few times in Perth City with people living with dementia with specific types of impairments. And it's a real eye-opener to see through their eyes what they're seeing. That's definitely echoing something that we're hearing a lot on the podcast. This move towards engaging people with dementia a lot more in the design process and in understanding what services and environments are going to be best for them instead of just consulting experts or research, but really involving the people who will live with those environments. Yeah, and again, I think this is part of the movement. It's part of that movement I was talking about, really. If I think about even probably 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, people living with dementia were very much a passive recipient of everything. Mm. And again, it comes back to that paradigm of what do you understand and think about when you think about a person with dementia? Most people have this stereotype in the head of this very frail, very old person in a nursing home who needs feeding and is incontinent. And that's kind of the image that people have of somebody with dementia. But of course, it's a spectrum, it's a journey from the point of day of diagnosis where you were no different on that day than you were the day before, mm. right through to that end stage of life. But through that journey, there's, it's very different. And shifting that stereotypical thinking, I think, is one of the movements that I'm seeing and people starting to go, we can engage with people living with dementia to help us co-design this in a genuine way and that we can get their insights and that they have a lot to give and nobody is more of an expert in their condition than they are. And I think that's a big shift. I think for many years as professionals, we're the experts and we built our careers on being the experts. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm seeing a, 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 a slow but subtle but getting there shift where we're, ta- we're starting to take a step back as professionals and say, you're the experts, you guide us, as opposed to the other way around. Now, that's going to take a long time, but I'm seeing that movement happening and it's a big shift. It's a big paradigm shift. We were fortunate on this podcast to speak to Christine Bryden, an ambassador for Dementia Australia, who's she's got so much to say about her experience in living with dementia and she's written multiple books about her journey with it and that was a really eye-opening experience for me to, to have the conversation and to understand the way in which it affects her everyday life and, and how articulate she can be with the experience and what the ways that she's found to work around it and work with it. Yeah, yeah. And Christine's an incredibly inspiring woman and we've got Kate Swaffer in Australia, who likewise is an amazing advocate. And she represents people living with dementia on the world stage at, at places like the World Health Organization and the United Nations. And we've got many more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in WA, we, we run a dementia advocates network. And that's for people living with dementia and family members who want to put their hand up and say, yep, yeah, I want to be involved. I want to have a say. And so that's a growing group of people who front up to the media to tell their story or educate students or get involved in research or help me write policy submissions. Again, there's just a movement happening and it's partly generational, I think. I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to have worked with three different generations of people living with dementia now because I've been around a while. So, um, and I've seen subtle shifts in each demographic group in the way that they're responding to their dementia. And I think the group that are coming through now, who are the 70 to 90 year olds generally I mean there's obviously younger people with dementia as well but as a, the mass of, of where the most people living with dementia are you know those people are, are, have are, had a very different life to the last generation who were the people who fought in the first and second world war that I worked with and they're very different and they've had a very different life experience they're much more used to choice they're much more used to spending their money how they want to spend it they're much less passive in what works for them and what doesn't And it's great to see because we're seeing a lot more people with dementia out of that generation put their hand up and say, yeah, I want to make a difference. I want people to know what this is about. 
and and I, I want to be a voice for this movement. And so I think that will just continue over the next 10 or 15 years. Mm. Now online, Jason, you've spoken out about the use of deception in caring for people living with dementia. Why is deception still such a, a feature in the way that some people relate to dementia and people living with it? It's a really interesting one. And I, ha- I do have strong views on some parts of this, but but they're also tempered with, as I said, the complexity of the situation as well. I think as a fundamental human rights issue and as a values and ethics based issue, we've got to keep talking about it. Again, there's no black and white. I've used deception at times in different ways. I know many practitioners and many families have. In fact, I'd be surprised if anybody hasn't, to be honest. So, you know, this isn't about sugarcoating anything or being some altruistic thing. It's about challenging ourselves to understand why we do it and is it okay to do it mm-hmm. okay and I don't have answers to that there's much more intelligent people than me that would probably give different answers but I, I think it's important that we continue the conversation around it there are some things that I'm pretty much against I have to say because but, but that's my personal belief and personal values base around people living with dementia because I think often some of the stuff that we do that is deceptive is in many ways just trying to mask a shortcoming in the way that we're doing things at the moment. Mm. I, I think it's, I'm not saying it's an easy out for us as, as practitioners, but I, I think, unfortunately, sometimes the way our services and systems are set up means that we create a lot of distress in people. Then we try, rather than try and validate what's causing that distress, we use deception to try and divert people. That's been a very common tactic for practitioners working with people with dementia. Having said that, I also, as I mentioned before, I believe the art of being with somebody with dementia is to get into their world because they often are in a different world, especially as the impairment becomes greater and their dementia journey moves on. They, they are often in their world mm-hmm. and their world makes total sense to them and our world makes no sense to them. So I think it's quite cruel for us to want to drag people into our world. Now, I sit here and say this and, 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 and think back to my early days as a practitioner. And I used to run groups for people living with dementia. And at the time, we used to believe that reality orientation was really important. And so I would have a group of 12 people with dementia who were living at home. And I'd sit them around in a circle. And I'd do these reality orientation sessions with them where I'd say, what day is it today, Mary? What's the weather doing outside? And so we try and ram reality (laughs) into the heads of people living with dementia. And these poor people were so embarrassed Mm. and so uncomfortable and got so distressed because they couldn't remember what day it was. And do you know what? It didn't really matter to them. (laughs) It kind of mattered to me that they knew it, (laughs) but it didn't matter to them. And this was very early in my career when I didn't know a lot better and that's how I'd been taught but it still felt really uncomfortable to me and I just couldn't wrap my head around why we thought this was a good idea. As I got older and wiser, I came to realise, and Dr Al Power in the United States, who's written quite extensively about the use of medication for people living with dementia, um, he's one of my mentors and he's one of the people who really helped me understand that really dementia is just a changed perception of the world around a person. And, And so if we're going to be truly person-centred and, and genuine practitioners, then we need to leave our world and, and get into theirs. And sometimes that means deception, not in a different way, in a different way that I'm not going to 
I'm not going to challenge your world, even though I know that might not be my world or the rest of everybody else's world. But for you, it's real. Mm -hmm. So I'm not deceiving you in a sense, because for you, it's very real. And so for me to try and drag you into the reality of what is real in my world is, is just, it never works <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> just creates more distress and ill-being. And, and B, we're not doing what people with dementia really need us to, be, to do, which is to be with them in their space and time. So deception is, it's a very complex area. We could talk for hours on it. I've had lots of interesting ethical debates with lots of different people around the world around deception. And it, and it stretches right through dementia care, through doll therapy, fake bus stops in nursing homes, pretend villages. It stretches right through telling people, don't worry about going home to your husband because he's fine when he died 20 years ago. Is that okay? It stretches through our world. And as I said, there's no right or wrong answers. We just need to keep challenging ourselves to understand is this the best we can do for somebody living with dementia? And I think if we keep challenging ourselves with that question, the rest of it will fall into place, I hope. What I'm hearing is that it's not necessarily that the action of deception is a problem, but rather the, the underlying intentions. And instead of trying to use it as a way to make the job of the carer easier or the cost of care cheaper, trying to think of if it's being used for the best interests of the care recipient at heart. And is it the best we can do? That's the other thing. That's the real challenge. And so if we look at doll therapy, let's take doll therapy, which has been contentious for my 30-year career. Mm -hmm. There's always been debate in the journal, journals about whether we should use doll therapy for people living with dementia or not. Because is it infantizing? Is it deceptive? Are we just papering over cracks? And so that's been a 30-year debate as long as I've been around for. And some people will say it works, so let's use it. And some people will say we're only using it because we've created such sterile care environments where people have no opportunity to care, where people have very little human connection and where people have no sense of identity and meaning. And so you get these two, <laughs> two opposing views and, and, you know, somewhere in the middle of all that probably sits where it is. Is there a right or wrong answer to it? No, there isn't. I guess the work that we do tries to look at why, do, why would we use a doll with somebody living with dementia? What is the need there that we're, that we're going to try and meet by giving somebody a doll? And then is there a different way of meeting that need? Is there a better way, in fact? Because the doll might be fine, but is it really deep? Is it a really deep and meaningful experience for the person? It might be, but it might not be. It might just be very superficial because there's nothing else. I liken it to giving a starving man a mouldy biscuit. He'd love the mouldy biscuit because there's nothing else. <laughs> so I often wonder, the sterile care environments we create where we take away opportunity for engagement and meaning and purpose and relationship and love and all of that stuff that's so intrinsic to us as human beings, then we see distress often communicated through behaviour. And then we either use medication or we use things like dolls. And, then I, and I think... If we step back to look at that environment we've created, both as a social environment and a physical environment, and we did that differently, would we need those things at the end of it? So for me, that's a, probably another piece of my career's work is trying to understand that and then trying to build our environments at Alzheimer's WA to really nurture people when they come to us, really enhance well-being and look at those domains of human need 
and well-being and then try and make sure that our physical environment supports that but more importantly our culture of care our staff expertise all of that stuff creates this environment where people's needs are met in a really genuine true way then maybe we don't need to bring in these therapies and these responses to deal with the problems when that's not there so it's a long and complex space i'm not saying doll therapy is bad and you should never use it i'm not saying doll therapy is good and use it for everybody i'm just saying think about why we use it and then look if there's a more meaningful way of doing it and i'm seeing really great stuff happening around the world here in perth we've got a nursing home being built at the moment that's going to have a childcare center slap bang in the middle of it mm. you know i get the sense they probably won't need doll therapy <laughs> in that nursing home because they're going to have daily interactions with real children. Yeah. I I'll give you a, probably one of the one of the moments that sort of started to sway me a certain way. Very quickly I'll tell you the story of a lady who educated me. She was a lady from Poland who came to one of our houses for the day two or three times a week and she didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Polish, but we had great conversations together as you often do when you can get into a space with somebody. And she used to love her doll. Mm -hmm. And so she had a doll and she would stroke the doll and brush the doll's hair and sing to the doll in Polish. And we thought, you know, maybe she's seen it as her own child or she was always a very nurturing person around children. And so that went on and and that was fine and she seemed to get a lot out of this doll. And then one day one of the staff brought a new dog that they'd got. So they'd got this little Bichon Frise white fluffy puppy. And I had the the puppy in my hand and I went to see this lady and I said to her, and and she looked at me and she had the doll in her hand and she looked at me and she smiled and her eyes lit up when she saw the dog and I sort of motioned to say would you like to hold the dog and she took the doll and she just dropped it on the floor <laughs> and she took the dog <laughs> and then spent the next hour with this dog just face a light it just made me really think that we just assumed that she'd seen this doll as a real baby and that's why she was nurturing it but clearly she wouldn't have done that to it <laughs> yeah. if she'd seen it as a real baby <laughs> you know it's really we've got to be really careful in what we assume i think and just try and find better ways of doing it in the future and and we'll just keep evolving and getting better at this yeah fantastic jason we've covered so much today we're pretty much out of time is there anything you want to talk about before we go not really just that i i think Whilst I'm frustrated at, at the slowness of change, I also have great hope. I think this is one of the most exciting times for dementia care, people living with dementia, the whole movement in Australia. I think we've got an amazing opportunity here. We've got the Royal Commission that's been really painful as a practitioner to see the Royal Commission. I think it's been really painful to hear the stories, but it's cast a light on just what we need to improve. I think the funding, the way funding is going with consumer directed care means that people are going to be much more empowered to have the services that they really want and they really need and that's very exciting and i think we'll get rid of bpsd one day i'm sure you know we'll start to really understand the human condition of dementia we'll build our environments that really support that the strength of aged care generally and especially dementia care is the staff they're wonderful caring amazing people we just need to give them the right organizational culture, the right care models, the right care environments and let them do their stuff and the lives of people living with dementia will be very different. So, I have great hope for the future. You know, I've got a few more years left in me yet to keep banging the drum. I'm always inspired by people living with dementia and family carers and they're the ones that keep my flame burning bright. 
and yeah i'm sure we'll just keep we'll just keep moving forward which is what we need to do fantastic thank you so much for your time today jason my pleasure thank you well we hope you enjoyed this episode of the aged care enrichment podcast brought to you by silver adventures don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you're listening and if you're enjoying it please leave us a review we'd really appreciate it If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver.com.au. See you next week.